Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the Times Literary Supplement. We will be coming to you on a weekly basis to talk about some of the ideas and writing that will be appearing in this week's edition of the TLS and cultural events that are going on around the world. Coming up on the show today, it is World Refugee Week and the TLS is carrying a long piece by Dan Trilling surveying the current literature on refugees. At its heart is a contradiction that is hard to reconcile that the state wants to treat irregular migrants or refugees and the definition between the two can be rather loose both as people to help and security threats to be neutralized they are to quote trilling at once faceless and an object of sympathy criminal and victim Trying to put a face and voice to refugees is a task that perhaps falls to the writer. And I will be joined by playwright Samantha Ellis, who has reviewed for the paper a number of works by and about refugees. Also, TLS commissioning editor Mika Ross-Southall has been visiting the refurbished Tate Modern in central London in the company of art historian Keith Miller, who will be reviewing the new display of its permanent collection in next week's TLS. She will be giving us a guided tour to the building. We'll also be looking at Turkey and the change that has been wrought over the last years as it moves from a modern open state to something more like a religious autocracy. Finally, Stephen Knight will be reading his poem, Are We There Yet? So we shall begin with World Refugee Week and the pressing issue covered at some length in the TLS this week of how we respond collectively to one of the major global events, indeed global crises, of our generation. I'm joined now by TLS Commissioning Editor Thea Lenarduzzi and author Samantha Ellis. Uh, Samantha, you've reviewed three books broadly on the subject of refugees for the TLS. Refugee Tales, edited by David Hurd and Anna Pincus. Migrant Women's Voices by Linda McDowell and A Country of Refuge, edited by Lucy Popescu. They seem to circle around rather a fundamental question. How can we empathise with and so somehow connect to the often alien experiences of refugees? Uh, What did you make of of the books? Well, I mean, they brought up really interesting questions about that, actually. I think I was almost more interested in the questions they brought up than any answers, because maybe there are no answers to these questions. But I felt that in Refugee Tales, the writers often inserted themselves into the narrative and were very careful to Uh, That book came out of interviews with refugees, so we're very, very careful to honour the original interviewees and to very, very sort of beholden to them. And I felt that for me that was distancing. I almost wanted them to 
you know, let go and write fiction and just sort of draw me in in the way that a, a storyteller can. Yeah, explain explain the format of Refugee refugee Tales, because it, it's an interesting one, because it has a relationship to the Canterbury Tales, doesn't it? Yes. Um, so it came out of a real walk uh, with tales told along the way, made by several writers and ex-detainees, because the focus is really on the people who've been in detention centres. And the walk was from... Uh, let me check, from Dover to Crawley via Canterbury. And it was in solidarity with refugees. And along the way, they told stories which were based on interviews with the refugees. And they gave a sort of reason for the refugees not telling their own stories because, of course, there was sort of a big audience at these at these storytelling evenings. And some people would have found it too traumatic to tell their own stories, to sort of perform them live. Others sort of feared reprisals if they spoke out openly about some of their experiences in detention centres. So they brought in writers to perform the stories and to shape them into narratives. So, yeah, do you think that's ethically interesting or difficult, I, I, I suppose, where instead of saying... Because they're, they're in some ways pitched as the authentic voices of refugees, but they have a right to interpose. Is that an act of mercy in some ways, or is it something that interferes with people's ability to, to talk freely and openly? I think it is something that's really problematic but I mean interesting more than anything because as I understand it as, as you said Samantha the mm. the stories are drawn from interviews um, and then they're performed by writers and so you've got this kind of performative thing going on at various levels you've got the the writer who's taking someone else's story and and you know embellishing it with all the flourishes and the stylistic um, decisions that a writer makes but then you've also got the root performance which is is, is the idea of, of refugees who are often, as you say in your review, they're sort of forced to tell their story and they're, they're forced to tell their story in, in a specific way. And there's this bit which you, which you mentioned, and I had no idea about this, about the LOC stamp, the lack of credibility stamp. Yeah. And the idea of someone being kind of, you know, their, their performance is being evaluated. That, I mean, the, the ethical kind of dimensions to, to that, I think, is explain, fascinating. Explain that lack of credibility stamp, Samantha. Well, um, uh, I, apparently it's a stamp that can be stamped on your application and you can be denied entry if your story doesn't quite hold water according to the person taking it down. I mean, it's, it's, it's used to sort of say, oh, these people aren't really refugees or they haven't really come from a war zone or whatever they're saying. Um, so it does. I think it does really problematise the telling of refugee stories. I felt that in Refugee Tales, they were um, very, very aware of the ethics. All the writers were very aware, but the sort of almost the, the over-awareness of the ethics made it hard to empathise with the refugees because it was just we didn't quite get to their stories. But aren't they giving them, these writers, giving them credibility? Because they're saying, we, we think your stories are worth listening to. I mean, David Hurd writes elsewhere in the paper about this project, and he says mm. that these refugees, particularly the detainees, people who are irregularly detained in Britain, they are outside the skin of language, is the phrase he uses. And are the writers not putting voices to the voiceless? And, and that ethically and emotionally is a great positive thing to do, isn't it? I felt that because their interventions were so hedged with doubts and about the ethics and about the relationship between the writer and the refugee uh, that you were very aware of the writer yeah, and I would rather have had a lightly edited story from the refugees themselves or for the writers who have turned the stories into fiction so that I could have felt that I was getting something where someone else had done some of the work of creating that bridge of empathy. And how do they handle that with, um, in the second book, which I think is interesting because it talks about migrant women's voices. Yes. How did they handle that issue there and, and, and how much of a this is a problem more for women than for men? 
Well, in Linda McDowell's book, it's interviews with 74 women, and they are very, very likely edited. That, of course, means that sometimes they're not great storytelling because you don't tell the story of your own life in a sort of perfect narrative arc. Um, and you might forget things and go back. And, you know, they have all of those sort of confusions and, and, and ellipses in the way they're told. But you get the sense that you're getting the story straight. And in terms of women, McDowell was talking about how often women won't cast themselves as the heroine of their own sort of refugee journey, whereas the Odyssey is a, a sort of a, a story that's often um, used to, to understand the stories of refugees. And that's a hero. I mean, I don't think the Odyssey works anyway because he's going home. So, Yeah, it's almost the opposite, isn't it? It's almost yeah, a reverse Odyssey. Absolutely. I mean, I, I find it very difficult when people use the Odyssey because he's got somewhere to go to. And I also find it difficult with the Canterbury Tales because those pilgrims also have homes to go to. I mean, is, 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 there, sorry, is there a sense in which there's this constant kind of attempt to, to graft a frame onto, onto these stories when really McDowell seems to come a lot truther to the reality, which is the kind of the polyphony of the experience. And the fact that now we're, we're dealing with, you know, 65,000 displaced people, that's unrivaled. So existing frameworks can't really help us to kind of comprehend this. I feel that the refugee stories have a framework of their own which is often subverted you know they start at home something goes wrong they have to leave they go on a journey and then hopefully at the other end they find a home often they don't i mean all or, or, or that is very problematic and long drawn out and the journey itself is full of perils but that is an arc you know that you can use or subvert to tell these stories i feel like adding these other frames on just yeah. confuses things. That's an interesting point. Also, uh, in, if we're speaking brutally for a second, how much does this matter? How how much good can fiction or um, collections of this of this nature, what can that actually achieve in your view? Because presumably it'll be read by a load of people who are sympathetic already. Is it ever going to cross into a mainstream where it might change people's minds? Are voices actually being heard when they're being collected in this way, do you think? I mean, I don't know who it will reach. I do know that when I was trying to understand my own refugee parents' stories, I read books like um, When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit. Paddington was helpful. I mean, you know, there are a lot of stories out there, and these are... I mean, Judith Kerr's book, When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit, is, I think, lightly fictionalised from her family's experience. And Paddington, you know, draws on the kinder transport. So I think fiction, for me, was very helpful. I had it in my own family. I had these stories in my own family, but it's still hard when you've just grown up somewhere and you don't have to leave at any time soon to really understand what it might be like. So can fiction, t- I mean, Thea, and this perhaps we'll have to leave it here, but can fiction teach you empathy? I mean, that's a, it's a big ask of fiction, and often <laughs> we talk about that. But I mean, and presumably that's what the, that's what the editors and the writers who have given their time and given their artistic efforts, they presumably want to teach empathy to people to say, here are some stories of people who otherwise look like statistics or otherwise, in in Trilling's words, look like either victims or criminals. And we're going to teach you to empathise with them as human beings. Is that too much of a burden to ask fiction to achieve, do you think? I think the the appeal to empathy is... It sometimes, you know, it, it's quite, it simplifies, but I think in, in this sense it is, it's vitally important because we see stories all the time. And, for example, th- this week there was the one about um, the deten- Australian detention centres on, on Manus and, and Nauris uh, near Papua New Guinea and, and, and going to work on those islands. It's referred to as, as a deployment and you have all of this kind of military language which dehumanises the thing and then the job of fiction is to make it human again, is to inject 
real feeling into it and, and I think that's vitally important. And Samantha, did, did these books for you take you far enough al- al- along that way? Um, I felt that A Country of Refuge, there, was, there were more stories in that that did that for me. I, of course, Newland's got a wonderful story imagining what would happen if British citizens had to flee, which is just terrifying. You know, you're literally putting yourself in the shoes of a refugee, imagining you yourself having to leave. And uh, there's a wonderful story by Sebastian Barry about the um, people who fled Ireland during the famine in what were called, I didn't even know, were called coffin ships. And again, that brings it very close to home. Um, and by putting it in a historical setting, you sort, of, you sort of see that this isn't new. You know, the movement of people isn't new, and we've got to be better at dealing with it and, and understanding it. Yeah, and that's the goal. Well, Samantha, thank you very much in, indeed. Uh, she's uh, written a review of these three books uh, in the TLS. It's very interesting. And, and the TLS, throughout this edition, because it is Refugee Week, we are talking about how we respond, both in terms of, of literature, but also in terms of the state, how we respond to this gigantic global crisis of refugees. Uh, Samantha Ellis, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. London's new Tate Modern Gallery has now opened with a record number of people visiting in its first weekend. An extension, a pyramid-like tower called the Switch House, has been built to expand the size of the existing Tate Modern. This week, TLS commissioning editor Mika Ross-Southall visited it in the company of art historian Keith Miller. They start their tour in the tank rooms in the basement of the new building. Keith, how would you describe the tank rooms we're in at the moment and the rest of the switch house from the outside and from the inside? Uh, well, I'd, to answer the second part of the question first, from the outside, I think it has an unmistakably sinister quality, which, which I'm, not, I'm not sure I dislike, but there's, it, it sort of broods over this part of South London. Uh, the, the pyramidal quality, I mean, it's actually quite sort of difficult to get your head around how the shape is, is actually generated. In fact, in plan, it looks like a series of panels from a, a houndstooth check jacket of various sizes. They're, 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 they're a kind of rectilinear cuboid uh, volumes that are interrupted by big wedges that twist around the outside of the building. So it's, it's full of kind of uh, energy, um, but the overall effect, yes, we're particularly with the kind of doleful earth colours of the brickwork, uh, it has a slight sort of sense of a kind of uh, a ruin. And down here in the basement where we are, where there's just a, a happy group of students has just passed by. Uh, but down here you can see a very sort of interesting kind of conceptual, conceptual is a very loaded word in the context of, of art, but um, but you can see where the structure, the, the pyramid or the ziggurat or whatever you want to call it, up above us, uh, has enormous concrete piers that slam down into a pre-existing space. Now the tanks were up and running uh, for a few years before they began work on the switch house, and, and the tanks were, they, they were a slightly kind of patronising concession to, uh, to a, a, a sort of funky late 60s, 70s performance art culture, So and the tanks were places where ephemeral uh, uh, live shows, performance pieces uh, took place compared to the rather sort of austere, austere municipal, g- ghastly good taste of, of, of the main building. And they, they clearly were meant to be a, a kind of slightly uh, fresher and more informal space. And what do you think this, this is a huge space now for modern art? And how do you think that the new extension impacts on the art world and the architecture world today? Well, it's clearly a, an event. Uh, it, it's it's a public event. It's a sort of tourist event. I mean, I, I visited the gallery during the opening weekend, and it was completely packed because of the fact that the space, the volume 
that's created is, is really concentrated down here in, in the tanks. And really, in terms of gallery space, I mean, I think there are, there are sort of th maybe three more floors of galleries, but each one is a sequence of rooms of uh, approximately the same size as one of the themed displays in the turbine house in the existing Tate Modern. So there isn't that much more art. I think this is a structure that's designed to accommodate more visitors, maybe, and maybe generate mm. more visitors, because uh, obviously, you know, it's almost a kind of fable of the London art scene, how, how everyone at Tate was taken by surprise by the enormous sort of show-stopping success of, of Tate Modern. And we're just walking up the staircase, which is a sort of twisting concrete circular shape and some of the angles of the building itself can be seen as we walk up the staircase. Well, I love this bit. I mean, it, it, this was, I was slightly disappointed when I first came here because uh, I do like a, a sort of Baroque kind of pleated elliptical shape. And there's a great arc coming down from the basement, which is the, the, the point of, the lowest point of contact for the two halves of the building, the old and the new. And it just sort of stops. Uh, and a feature of the, um, the original design when the building was glazed was, was that it had big arced staircases in the upper part of the design and now it's got one here and then portions of other staircases sort of suddenly burst into these lovely curving shapes. Uh, we're on the second floor now and there's some fantastically sort of concrete trusses that intersect the floor. Yeah, you can see how the twisting idea I don't really want to put words in the mouth of the architects because they will have come up with a, a lovely way of describing this, but, but the idea of the, of the sort of shearing, twisting energy of the building. The, the outside cladding wall is slightly out of step with the interior floor decks, so it creates these little, I hate the word atrium, but, but there's, a, there's a vertical space with big, heavy... Uh, Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
concrete uh, balconies. And so you're kind of you know, in between inside and outside, probably the simplest way of describing it. Um, but, in, but in fact, already, I mean, we've come up to level two now, and already you begin to see that the essential form of the building is just a rectangular tower, and then it's got all this sort of fun stuff around the outside. So the core, the lifts, the loos, uh, and as you go up the further, the stairs uh, becomes a larger and larger uh, percentage. So we're now on the viewing platform, which is on level 10 of the switch house, and we're looking over at the very elegant and simple chimney of the original Tate Modern. And how do you think the switch house fits in with the landscape of London, as we can we can see pretty much a 360 view of the skyline of London at the moment. Well, of course, we can't see ourselves, so that's a difficult question in a way. But as a regular commuter through Blackfriars Station, and as somebody who walks around the city a lot, and, and a, actually as somebody who went, I went sort of walking around around the site in various directions over the weekend, I, I think the brick cladding means that it's oddly unobtrusive. You see it sort of uh, lurking uh, in between other glitzier, slightly shoutier buildings of which there are an increasing number in this uh, vicinity. Uh, it's higher than the main structure of the original Tate, but uh, lower than uh, the, the Great Tower. It's actually oddly quite a sort of contextual and uh, even a modest building uh, from outside. Um, and it, obviously it's only as you approach it that, that this very daring, slightly terrifying um, formal language of, of the shearing planes and, and the sense, I mean, you, you do slightly sort of expect the severed head of an Aztec slave to be rolling down at you as, as, as you approach it. But in general, as, as a sort of an element of the city as a whole, uh, I think it's oddly uh, unobtrusive. Um, it's interesting that you said that actually about the kind of almost slightly primitive or Aztec aesthetic of it and actually there was a German architect Gottfried Semper in the 19th century who spoke about how the kind of origins of architecture are a primitive hut and perhaps this brickwork feels a bit kind of like that original weaving fabric that he described as as the kind of enclosure of yeah. a building yeah well absolutely I mean I, I think I mean Semper's completely fascinating but, the, but he's I mean his ideas fell on very stony ground in this country because we had Ruskin and we had a slightly different uh, model but but sort of on the one hand I mean Semper's sort of archetypal piece of architecture really is, is, is kind of a tent it's a structure with a skin over the top uh, and the skin is, is it, in some of his sort of writings it's explicitly defined as, as, as a textile and of course um, here we have brick being treated almost in a, in a sort of textile way somebody like Ruskin uh, hated those ideas and, and thought that the, the you know the structure of the building should somehow grow it should be like a tree or, or something. But anyway, you know, th these originary theories of architecture are always uh, a bit sort of crazy, really, and, mm. and they never sort of take any account of where the loos have got to go and uh, stuff like that. Um, and we're all we're constantly reminded of the brick as well as we go throughout the building. As as we can see at the moment, there's a sort of overhang on the viewing yeah. platform, which shows you the perforated brickwork. And it almost, I, I don't know what you think about this viewing platform, but to me it feels a slightly compromised space. It feels a little bit too small, perhaps, for the amount of visitors that are probably yeah, going uh, well, to Yeah, there's come. a strange thing that there's a, a large rectangular glazed-in area where the lifts come out and where the, as we discussed earlier, the stairs get sort of more kind of meagre and more linear as you go up. And in fact, the, uh, the last few floors, having, having endlessly bounded up and down them at the weekend, uh, um, it, it does sort of feel slightly like a kind of 
um, Young Offenders Institute sort of service staircase or something. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I wonder why they had to have the indoor. Well, of course, there's an espresso bar, so that's one reason. But but in a sense, it would have been purer to have have the whole thing kind of outdoors. Uh, it, it's sort of it is a compromise space, uh, I think. Uh, I also think there's something sort of slightly lazy about the fact that new buildings in London just have to have a viewing platform, and that's you know that's just something they have to do. So they've sort of almost you know they phoned it in because. It was expected of them, and it does. It certainly doesn't have that sense of uh, kind of formal and textural contradiction that you see in the in the lower parts of the building, which are, which I think are kind of the most exhilarating thing about it. Sixty years ago, Rose Macaulay wrote *The Towers of Trebizond*, the last of her 23 novels. The book was based on her own research of the area, which used to be part of the Ottoman Empire. When she went there in 1954, she lodged in a room not fit for a goat, as she said. As a woman, she was banned from swimming in the Black Sea, but she was allowed to see the decaying monuments of what she called the fabled city, whose towers shimmer on a far horizon, gated and walled and held in luminous enchantment. This city included the 13th-century church of Hagia Sophia which, though derelict, contained hints of rather beautiful sculptures and paintings. Richard Clogg writes in this week's TLS of his experience in the late 50s of uncovering the art and turning the site into a museum. This museum is now no longer there. The building in 2012 was desecularised and the paintings screened off. It has now become a mosque. And questions are being asked about the future of the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul, the great 6th century edifice of St Justinian. It became a museum in 1934, a site of Christian relics. It now may become a mosque again. And as debate rages about the viability of Turkey as a possible EU member, we may well ask the question about the current regime's tolerance both of the Christian faith and the secular world more broadly. So we are joined now by Rupert Short, the TLS's religion editor. Rupert, just give us a brief historical overview, I suppose, of what has happened in Turkey over the recent years. (laughs) Well, what we're seeing now is a aggressive kind of nationalism aggravated by religion. It wasn't always like that. I'd like to emphasise that uh, there was a time when things were a, a lot more enlightened. There, there was a um, famous French visitor to Turkey about 300 years ago at a time when people were still being burnt at the stake in Europe who observed that the religious ecology in the Ottoman Empire was far superior to anything that one was seeing in, in Europe at, at the time. But um, You forget that there's these sort of cycles of tolerance within that, that's Islam. That's right. I mean, his, historically, Muslim societies have been better than Christian ones at integrating minorities, ne- never on conditions of complete equality, but still allowing people to, to function pretty normally. And... It's just very sad that um, things have taken a, a turn dramatically for the worse when um, Turkey had been moving in a much more secular direction after the First World War. And that was Ataturk? Yes, I mean, you, you might argue that part of the problem with religious extremism, not just in Turkey but around the world today, is that secular elites have imposed their vision on a reluctant populace. There's been this idea, not just in Turkey, but in in all sorts of societies, Mexico, Egypt, India, that somehow religion is backward and that people will grow out of it. And unfortunately, the result of that has simply been 
religious revivals of a more extreme kind, a, a, a sort of backlash on the part of the, the ordinary population against a perceived elite. And what does that mean for, for churches in Turkey? So the, the two examples really um, in the piece, in the, in the tier list, there's the Hagia Sophia in Trebizond, which has known, is now no longer a church, it's, and it was a museum, it is being used as a mosque again, and possibly the more iconic building is the Ayasofya in Istanbul and and is that genuinely likely to 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 be desecularized and then reconverted back into a mosque I don't know but the omens don't look very good unfortunately with with Ayasofya in in Istanbul this was considered the greatest church in the world for almost a, a thousand years until the um, rebuilding of St Peter's in Rome and it was turned into a mosque, as you know, by the, the Ottoman conquerors in the, in the 15th century and was uh, used for worship by Muslims for several centuries. Then Ataturk's uh, stroke of genius after the First World War was to turn it into a museum, as, as, as you've uh, indicated. And there has been a, a movement in recent years to turn it back into a mosque. There have been demonstrations recently by Islamists demanding that it be used again for Muslim worship and the the more worrying precedent I think not just for Christians but for people who care about civil rights in um, Turkey generally has been that as of the, the start of Ramadan this year, permission has been given for the pre-dawn call to prayer from uh, from inside the, the building. And it looks to me as though strong pressure is 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 building up. But of course, that that will be resisted. We talk about secular, though, Rupert, but we're not. This isn't secular. This is Christian. Why? Why? why because why is this not a church? Why did it become a museum? Because in the end, the, Richard Clarke writes about it. They they find these religious paintings. They find these religious the statues, church statues. But it's not a church, is it? It's becoming a museum. Is that the? Is that all that can be achieved in terms of the Christian community? A a, a museum rather than a church. Well, I think given that uh, Turkey is now an overwhelmingly Muslim country, it would be probably asking too much for arguably the country's most iconic building to be turned back into a church. Um, Would that ever have been possible, even under Ataturk, do you think? I mean, a hundred years ago, uh, almost 15%, 1-5% of the Turkish population was Christian. Because of population exchanges, because of uh, persecution and discrimination, that figure has now fallen to a quarter of 1%. So only 150,000 to 200,000 people out of 72 million in Turkey are are Christian. I think you need to to perhaps um, go back not not as far as 500 years but maybe back to um, Peter the Great to really understand what's going on here. The imperial project of Peter the Great onwards which involves this great bid on the part of orthodox Christians to reclaim Constantinople as, as they called it for Christian orthodoxy did lead to multiple invasions, uh, population exchanges, all sorts of divisions along linguistic and ethnic as well as religious lines, population expulsions on the basis that people weren't sufficiently Greek or or Bulgarian or or what have you. And what 
what it has left Turkey with is a very, very defiant sense that to be Turkish is to be Muslim. It's why they're so uh, paranoid about any admission of fault in relation, for example, to the Armenian genocide of 100 years ago. It's interesting, because in the, in the TLS this week, we have a review by uh, Ephraim Kirsch about Turkey's behaviour before the First World War and how it inveigled Germany into an alliance, but it actually then specifically draws parallels with Turkey's behaviour now and its desire to join the EU. But there is a quote which the review ends with, which is from the Turkish Prime Minister, which says, Islam is Europe's indigenous religion and will continue to be so. Um, And he talks about um, uh, sowing the seeds here, which will, with Allah's help, continue to grow into a huge tree of justice in the centre of Europe. No one will be able to stop this. We will enter the EU with our language, our traditions and our religion. Would we ever sacrifice one iota of that culture? With Allah's grace, we will never bow our heads. This is the language of the of the Turkish Prime Minister. And at a time where we are talking about Turkey being integrated into a European project, potentially never, but at least the, the concept is being discussed, we are also being confronted, which which something that feels like something that verges on an extremist position yes, from the you, government. You need to distinguish between things that are said for, for domestic consumption and things that are are said for the international arena, as with many rulers. But you are definitely putting your finger on something important and worrying. This is such a sensitive subject. There is a view that Islam is a more a more martial religion. Uh, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, who's about the last person in the world who could ever be accused of Islamophobia, once put it rather well when he said that Islam is not an inherently violent religion, but it is a faith that sets a great deal of store by victory conceived in quite worldly terms. It's only really in Christianity that you get, for all the faults of individual Christians, you get a revelation of strength in weakness. And Christianity, as a matter of fact, is the, is the only monotheism that doesn't originate in the, the conquest of, of territory. To bring, sorry, can I just to yeah, bring, it back to, to bring it back to, to Turkey and Clog's piece um, in this week's issue? He kind of ends the piece on a a sort of a, a slightly optimistic note, I mean, I say, you know, slightly, in that he, he says that there's been, um, the good side is that at least there's been this interest in, in Byzantine art and an interest in it and in, in, in its preservation. But is that is that not sort of more fuel for the fire of, of this kind of division within Turkish society? Because um, Erdogan has very uh, pointedly said, you know, I'm a black Turk, as opposed to this kind of the alternative being the the white Turk. And it seems to me that the, the people who are becoming interesting, interested in this this art and their heritage, it's always going to be a kind of an academic elite or, or the tourist, not necessarily the lay person that Erdogan is, is appealing to. I think that's a very important point, Thea. Your remarks remind me of William Dalrymple's book, From the Holy Mountain, where he talks about travelling through Turkey twice, once in the early 90s and once in the late 90s, and seeing to his horror the way that Christian remains, gravestones, had been systematically obliterated. Well, so we nearly ended on an optimistic note there, Rupert, but Thea quite rightly brought us back to something more like realism. That's almost all we have time for this week. Um, Thanks very much to Samantha, Thea and Rupert, of course, and Keith Miller. Please do subscribe uh, to this podcast on iTunes. We'll be back every week from now on with highlights from the TLS and the week's culture. This week's TLS is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today. Plus, 
Our summer book recommendations, Robert Douglas Fairhurst on the film Tale of Tales, Jim Campbell on his experiences at the Second Isle of Wight Festival, which is quite something, Toby Clements on Richard III, Nicholas Popper on the birth of modern science, and Shahida Bari on cross-dressing in early Hollywood. All of human life is there. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at the TLS. But finally, a great pleasure to introduce a poet reading his own work. This is Stephen Knight and his poem, Are We There Yet? We are travelling for ages, though the wind and rain are frontal, hence the windscreen wipers ticking and my heartbeat contrapuntal. And the parents, half in shadow, in no mood for conversation, who have stared towards our future or the nearest filling station. Since we left my worn-out childhood, on the verge, with neither sorrow nor a thank the Lord it's over, then headed for tomorrow. In this silence they are nursing, which is blacker than its hollow. We are many miles from somewhere, without a map to follow. We are somewhere that is no place in the night which makes me shiver, and the sky is made of thunder, and the road is made of river. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.